Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox hosted by Richard Lummis. What makes a great leader? Is it genetic or can you learn leadership skills? Join Tom Fox and Richard Lummis in this podcast where they consider leadership from a wide variety of perspectives, academic, behavioral science, history, popular culture, the movies, and much more. You'll learn about specific tactics and strategies that you can bring to your own leadership toolkit. 12 O'Clock High is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. This is Richard Lummis. I'm here with Tom Fox for another discussion on how to improve our leadership skills. We believe leadership is a skill which can be improved with study of both good and bad practices. We try to draw interesting examples from many sources, including history, film, fiction, and business writing. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Today we'll be discussing the meteoric rise and sort of fall of Adam Newman and WeWork. It's part of a mini-series on charismatic founders and the tension between creativity and control that exists in every company but is particularly exaggerated in the startup world. WeWork is fundamentally a real estate leasing company, but under Newman's charismatic leadership, it sold itself as being on a mission to elevate the world's consciousness and change the way work is structured. At one point, it operated some 520 locations and had a $47 billion valuation with $2 billion in revenue. In the first half of 2019, it had $1.5 billion in revenue, but it should be noted it also had losses from operations of $1.37 billion. In September of 2019, the Wall Street Journal published an extremely skeptical article um, as they were preparing their IPO titled, How Adam Neumann's Over-the-Top Style Built We Work. This is not the way everybody behaves. The article detailed instances of self-dealing and misbehavior, as well as a corporate culture that can only be described as weird. After the collapse of the proposed IPO in September, the Japanese firm SoftBank stepped in to rescue the company, forcing Newman out, but paying him almost a billion and a half in cash to make him go away. Tom, how, where can we start with this? How did a tequila-swilling, pot-smoking guy whose ambition is to become president of the world get so far? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Richard. We have uh, looked previously at Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos. We've taken a look at Travis Kalanick from uh, Uber, and uh, this um, look at Adam Newman. Uh, in researching this, I really felt like he was different than the first two. Um, Elizabeth Holmes, uh, although at some point she did make a decision to uh, actively engage in deception, I think originally she thought that they could build something, and they spent money uh, and time and effort to try to build the blood testing machine that she had envisioned. I think Travis Kalanick saw a business need and moved in uh, with a business opportunity uh, to uh, the taxi cab and transportation industries uh, that was uh, a gaping hole. What uh, Adam Newman brought... Uh, and I'm glad you focused on the office leasing because I think it, there was real value there and a real opportunity and a real different way uh, to make money. But some of uh, it, it morphed into, uh, as you said, uh, to elevate the consciousness of the world by the future president of the world. Um, and <clears throat> so I thought Newman was, was really different. Uh, and it's not clear to me... Um, if he, he was anything more than just a huckster. Um, 
selling a, a, very, a very big con that a lot of people bought into. Uh, at one point, he was given um, um, $1.3 billion, uh, excuse me, $3.1 billion by uh, SoftBank uh, and just basically say, here, go use the money. Yeah. And boy, did he. <laughs> um, so um, we saw from him, uh, if, maybe if I could start back with the, the business model. Because I thought the original business model of uh, taking up lease space in offices that were underperforming and then basically subleasing the desks out was a relatively good business model. Because you're taking a lease, cost X dollars, uh, you have so many square feet per lease, and if you can uh, sublease those into smaller plots, um, it's a business model that's been around a long time. And if you can make the economics in each stage of that work where you're protected, i.e., uh, you have a lease, you have uh, clauses to get out of the lease or terminate the lease under certain conditions, uh, you have those same uh, clauses mirrored with your subtenants, uh, that could be, uh, I think, a viable business model. Uh, where at some point, though, that changed, and that changed into something very different that, that you detailed. Uh, we talk about a, a man who uh, uh, bought Gulfstream for his company. He had, I think, five different homes that we identified in some of the research, including a, a $30 million-plus home in the Hamptons outside of New York. Uh, he routinely uh, traveled the world for looking for the perfect wave to surf on um, while smoking pot, uh, crossing international borders on planes. I shudder to think how the pilots uh, uh, protected themselves from that. Um, and um, the vision he was trying to uh, create, uh, one of the companies he created, let me see if I could find it, was Life, Life Biosciences, and its mission was to create a future where age-related decline is not a fact of life. That's very different than <laughs> office leasing. Um, but the office leasing part still, I think, resonates. I do an office lease, and, and I find it to be a very economic, cost-effective, and enjoyable way for me to work, to get out of the house, because I pr primarily work from home when I'm not traveling, but also to be around other professionals. And just uh, having that kind of interpersonal connection, interpersonal contact is a positive experience for me. Uh, the place where I uh, in, uh, have the office lease has many of the other amenities, uh, food, coffee, snacks, uh, presentations on uh, various areas of business, uh, printers. Uh, there's no spa, but um, <laughs> it's it's certainly uh, a very functional business place to do to do business. And so, being on the head of that revolution, I think, uh, or if not revolutionary, was certainly evolutionary and and positive. Where Newman really seemed uh, to go off the rails, though, um, in addition to wanting to be the president of the world, um, was in corporate governance. And uh, I think if the original IPO had gone through as he had envisioned it, it was truly a disaster waiting to happen. As I recall, he had super voting rights of 10 to 1. Uh, his wife had control over who would be named the next CEO uh, if he became incapacitated or died or stepped down. Um, he was engaging in an extraordinarily amount of extraordinary amount of self-dealing, starting with he owned the leases, um, 
um, that were being uh, funded by WeWork, number one. Number two, he somehow claimed a trademark on the phrase we. Yes. And then he sold that trademark to uh, WeWork for $6 million, I believe. Yes. Um, You can't trademark we. Uh, let me just, as, as a lawyer, I rarely give out legal advice, but I'm, I'm just going to tell you on this one, you can't trademark we. That one's for free. That one's for free. <laughs> and uh, you can we wherever you want. If you're English, I'm sure you're tee-heeing at that one. But um, the the self-dealing uh, is, is um, mansions were filled with artwork paid for by WeWork. His wife was in charge of um, culture around the company. Uh, to the point where uh, I think she uh, advised on the uh, filing statements uh, for the the S-1 for the IPOs to make sure it looked appropriate for a WeWork uh, document. And so the corporate governance, the uh, conflicts of interest, and the self-dealing all, I think, pointed to extraordinary problems if the company had gone public. I'm not quite sure this next round of comments is outside kind of the leadership we talk about, but uh, I was also um, really intrigued, not so much with the market response, because I thought the market response was appropriate, but that the market worked. And um, the the valuation was, uh, I think, uh, $47 million was going to be. Initially, yes. Yeah. And um, uh, the market balked at that. And uh, the valuation now is around $16 billion, but that's, that's the way markets work. And we've seen uh, in a prior podcast, we talked about the uh, IPO of Uber and what the evaluation was planned to be, what the valuation was when it went public and the value of the stock now. Uh, if you want to take it in a different direction, uh, Saudi Aramco um, recently uh, announced an IPO and they had originally wanted a valuation of over $2 trillion. Right. And um, they didn't get that. Mm-hmm. And they weren't able to place it on either the New York or London stock exchanges. Um, and there were no major uh, non-Saudi uh, companies uh, heading the listings for the uh, company or for the uh, offering. And I see that as a market response. So um, we rarely talk about the market's working in this podcast. We've seen examples of where perhaps the markets didn't work. But this seems to me to be an example of rationality in the markets um, correcting for irrationality in uh, corporate governance, self-dealing, and evaluation. Well, and also in the isolated world of venture capital. I think uh, sometimes that world is so small that they all drink the same Kool-Aid, and I think that's what happened here. I think you're absolutely correct. This, the business model of WeWork was not revolutionary. It was evolutionary, but it made a lot of sense. I've, I've also leased an office, and it was you know, sort of a dark cubicle-like space. And the WeWork spaces are apparently bright, open. They encourage collaboration. They just, you know, people just like to work there. So, and I think the, the, the flexibility of it is, is key in fact, I was talking with a, a guy in commercial uh, real estate, and he said the developer, Gerald Hines, now includes a couple of floors of flex space in all of his new buildings because tenants don't want to necessarily commit to an entire new floor if they're not sure they're going to want it long term. So instead, they take the portions of these flex floors on a, on a more or less temporary basis. 
So that's a that's a real threat to the WeWork model, but I think it, it does show that the market is, is going in that direction. Well, that's a, another point on WeWork uh, that struck me is they moved to enterprise clients, um, several large corporations, rented space from WeWork, where WeWork came in and managed uh, the uh, property, um, but they had floors dedicated to these individual enterprises, and that seems to me to also make a lot of sense. I know several um, multimillion-dollar companies that basically uh, have taken that model on rather than having a long-term fixed lease and are able to uh, have that collaboration, have the the status of having a, a, a office address in a, a Class A office building with all the amenities, and uh, WeWork was able to make that model work, uh, most particularly in New York City, uh, because of the price of real estate. But I think as corporations are shedding themselves of their real estate portfolios, they may try to move uh, to this model too. And and once again, uh, as you, I think, correctly note, it, it may not be revolutionary, but it's certainly evolutionary. And innovation can happen in an evolutionary manners, manner. And uh, I do credit WeWork for uh, taking these concepts which had been around a long time and actually uh, uh, kind of repackaging and popularizing and making them cool. But I do go back to the fact that their losses from operations almost equal their revenue. <laughs> so to the extent they were making it work, I'm not sure <laughs> what that means in this context. Right. Um, uh, the, the self-dealing you talked about, I mean, among other things, the, the wife was not the only relative on the payroll. Apparently nepotism was rife. Um, she also would fire people on the spot if she didn't like their energy. Uh, can I just say you and I probably would have been 1A and 1B. <laughs> I think so. One of the other things that struck me, though, here is um, the very unusual, among the other unusual behaviors, um, unlike most founders, uh, Norman was selling his stock in the early rounds, um, that's, also, that's highly unusual. Generally, founders hang on to all the stock they can, especially if they believe in the business. In addition, he was borrowing hundreds of millions of dollars against the stock he retained that was going to be paid off as a result of the IPO. Oddly enough, J.P. Morgan held a number of those loans and was one of the underwriters on the IPO, which I'm not sure if that made it to the S1 or not, but it probably should have. Yeah, I really, uh, I thought that was a, a very key indicia of... Um, I don't think I can say that's self-dealing, but I would say concern. Yeah. When the owner, uh, the founder does that, uh, the $740 million uh, borrowed against his stock, that's just eye-popping. Yeah. Um, I find it difficult to believe one person needs $740 million. <laughs> um, nevertheless, um, that's what uh, he borrowed. And um, the, um, the private jets... The, the lifestyle uh, he engaged in, uh, they did things like um, banned reimbursement of employee expenses where a beef product was uh, consumed all, at all lunch. All meat. All meat. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it just uh, seemed to be inconsistent with uh, standard business practices. I think that's uh, very, very well understated. <laughs> Are there any lessons that we can draw uh, from other than kind of the ones we articulated in terms of when you see some of these red flags around corporate governance? Um, 
I mean, for me, the, the, I think the market did appropriately respond, but um, I would hope investors, when they see this, recognize that uh, if you put your money into a, a business like this, you really need, or you really are going eyes wide open. You're going to have zero control. You're going to have zero ability to influence anything, and you're totally at the mercy of uh, someone who runs it as if it's their um, backyard enterprise. Yeah. Well, I think the role of SoftBank in this may justify its own podcast, but a lot of these other investors were committing hundreds of millions of dollars within minutes of meeting the guy. Now, apparently, he is that good, uh, and I think huckster's probably the right term, but he is that good that these seasoned investors who are used to doing due diligence and everything were just ready to write check after spending five minutes with the guy. Um, let's, let's spend a little bit of time about SoftBank, because that's really something I don't think we've seen to this extent. Now, in um, Uber's case, with Travis Kalanick, we had uh, one early investor, I believe, Benchmark Capital, uh, who, um, Bob Gurley? Yeah, Bill Gurley. Bill Gurley was seen as a mentor figure to Kalanick. But this seemed to be something different. Uh, with the Maso son of SoftBank, really almost, uh, I mean, the, the articles I read s- suggested that he saw him as, as a son or uh, that sort of uh, relationship. Um, is that, first of all, that's typically not something we see from venture capitalist investors, but did that perhaps uh, blind SoftBank or give, uh, give Newman uh, too much leeway? Well, I think it unquestionably gave him too much leeway, and um, it, it is bizarre and the reasons for SoftBank to come in after the failed public offering and prop this up have a lot to do with their own internal problems. Um, this would have represented a, a catastrophic uh, blow to its uh, vision fund um, if, if this had gone to zero. Um, and so instead, they, they threw billions of dollars more at it. And I'm not sure that's necessarily the right decision either, but that's... I don't understand the structure of SoftBank. Um, apparently, it's a one-guy shop. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe no one understands the uh, structure of SoftBank, uh, and the investors who pumped money into it may be ruining that day. Yeah, I think so. But uh, and I think that's, uh, that's an interesting question. And the was he also conned? or He's known for taking very uh, big bets um, at long odds, and a lot of them have paid off, so. Well, it's an interesting uh, study. Um, I think uh, we're going to be able to talk about WeWork again uh, at some point simply uh, as the uh, post-Newman era uh, has arrived and will continue to go forward. Um, Yeah, I think it's going to be fun to watch, and uh, I look forward to somebody making that business model work. For now, this is Richard Lummis and Tom Fox with 12 O'Clock High. Join us again next time. This is Paris Fox again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.